You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so I have a million things to ask our next guest, uh, and it's a homecoming of sorts for him. Dexter Roberts, he is now a Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana, but he's former China Bureau Chief for Bloomberg Business Week. He's got a book out, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and The Future of the World. No big deal, just taking on a huge topic here. He's here with me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome back. Well, thank you. Uh, so... I gotta. I don't. I've been debating with myself where to start. Let's start with the book, just because it it's so timely in a lot of ways. You probably couldn't have imagined how timely it was going to be when you started it. What was the idea that you set out to capture? So, the, the basic idea, or the the myth of the title, is this idea that uh, China is becoming more capitalistic. That China is. Uh, continuing on this reform path that started way back under Deng Xiaoping. Yeah. Um, and uh, continuing, the myth is that China will continue to grow its middle class. And uh, the, yes. All right. So I'm going to stop you there only to say, what does the last three months mean for that? Well, um, the last, so we were talking coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes. So, I mean, I think... I. I think that we're, we're, what, what some of the things, the arguments I make in the book about uh, uh, the other China, the migrant workers and the farmers, their, their cousins in the countryside, which, by the way, is about 500 million people. So we're wow. talking, we're getting close to half the population. Um, they've been long treated. More people than live in the United States. Uh, yes, considerably more than live in the United States. Well, for a long time, they've, in effect, been treated as second-class citizens. Um, they don't have access to the same health care. They don't have access to the same education. On average, they're making you know, less than a, or roughly a third of, of, of urban incomes. And there's policies that, that keep them in that position, which we can get into later. Um, but that uh, relationship between the city, the people in the city and these second class citizens has really been brought home. I mean, the, the unequal relationship has really been brought home by the coronavirus. Because these, even as cities in Beijing seem to be returning to some degree, normalcy is not the right word, but things are a little more regular there. You know, if you're a white collar worker, you're working from home, you're going to the office some, sometimes. Things are a little more num- normal, companies are reopening. That's not happening for, the, for these people, these right. migrants and, and, and rural people. Right, and so you were in Beijing for 23 years, you were in Taiwan b- before that. How did this story change? What, did, so how did, so, did your thesis evolve or what did you see happen over that period because that 23 years it just ended uh, for you just a couple of years ago I, I mean what a period in, in the history of the country yes I mean I, when I, I arrived in I think it was January of 1995 in Beijing and uh, you know the economy was somewhere in the bottom of the top 10 economies in the world I think uh, there wasn't really a consumer economy there really wasn't I mean yeah. the car sales were 85 percent government and fleet sales for big state enterprises there weren't people buying cars there was no housing market really there was no housing market until until later reforms happened in the late 90s so uh, the place was transformed uh, WTO entry in 2001 which I covered for Business Week was a real seminal moment obviously bringing in 
enormous amounts of investment uh, and really transforming the economy and, and bringing this uh, factory to the world uh, export model into its into its full uh, full character. Mm -hmm. And so when you left, what did what what sort of what were you thinking China would become? Is that sort of what's manifested in this book? In some yeah. Way? So I mean, I first met some of the the people that I talk about in the book. This this family from uh, or this relatives from a, a small town in rural Guizhou, the Mo's, in the year 2000. I was doing a cover story. I did a cover story for Business Week called The Great Migration. Uh -huh. And uh, at that point, um, uh, you know, we're uh, a year before WTO entry. Everyone knew China was getting in then. The agreement was signed in 99. There was great hope, including for these villagers in this small town. This idea that foreign investment would come in. They were glad to see me as a Business Week reporter who might somehow let the world know about their village. They wanted processing factories for the, the chilies that they grew in, in the slopes in their, in their town. So there was really great hope. And this continued for years, I must say. But what I argue in the book is uh, uh, particularly in the last five years, uh, that vision of, of a, a continual reform and more opportunity for people has, has, has really vanished. Right. So before we knew about the virus, we knew a lot about the trade war. How was that playing through, uh, especially on the China side? Because we talked a lot, as you can imagine, uh, having worked here, about the, the global impact, but certainly the U.S. impact. How was that playing through it, your perception uh, on the China side? Yeah, well, I think the, that I mean, China's it's not, not exactly a double whammy, but they were struggling with the trade war for the last two years before the coronavirus ever, ever hit them. Um, and at the same time, of course, multinationals were, were already looking at, at the, the, uh, the immediate need to diversify the global supply chain. Right. And, uh, and China, on the other hand, was saying, wait a minute, this is, this is, a, this is an issue that will continue to bedevil us. They started to diversify, uh, for example, their agricultural purchases. They stopped buying so many American soybeans, and they started buying big uh, in Brazilian so soybeans. So there was already a shifting relationship there. The, the economy w was impacted by it. The coronavirus comes along. It really hits the economy, right. of course. We're going to see... You know, we were already seeing it. We're going to see negative growth. Um, it's it, everything basically shut down for the last couple months. Um, and on the outside, you, we, you know, the, these multinationals are now, uh, you know, it's painfully obvious that they need to diversify their global supply chains much more quickly. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Dexter Roberts uh, is still with me. He works out at the University of Montana now. Uh, he's a former Bloomberg Business Week China Bureau Chief. So I got to ask you, 23 years, almost three decades, I believe, uh, living over in Asia, you come back to, I believe, your home state of Montana. What was that like? Well, you know, a big, a big change. I mean, yeah. the state of Montana has about roughly a million people. I think I was telling you earlier, the, the district of Beijing had five that I lived in called Chaoyang District had maybe five or six million people and the wow. whole city, maybe 20 million. So, you know, radically different. Yes. And so when you talk to folks uh, there in Montana, or just back here in the United States, I feel like I deal with this here in New York City. How much misconception is there, especially in this day and age with all the back and forth between the U.S. and China about China? How much sort of education, re-education do you feel like you're doing to help people understand it? Well, you know, I think that happens a lot. I, you know, there are some misconceptions, but I should say, I mean, I was surprised and pleasantly surprised at how out in Montana, you know, there's a big agricultural industry. Yeah. A lot of those people... 
you know, whether it's wheat or, or beef, these are people that have been relying on the China market and, and pretty knowledgeable people. I do, yeah. talk, I do call on radio in, in Montana and, and I get these ranchers calling in and they actually know a lot about China. Yeah. And did, what did they make of the trade war? They, you know, well, it's, it's Montana. So uh, they started <laughs> out uh, being pretty supportive yep. of the administration um, and, uh, and, and, and hoping and saying, yes, we, you know, hard times ahead, but uh, the tariffs are necessary. I think that uh, is starting to sort of crumble. Yeah. People are worried. They're, you know, they're still struggling. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still with me, Dexter Roberts, Mansfield Fellow at University of Montana out in Missoula, and the former Bloomberg Business Week China Bureau Chief. His new book, his first, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, the Factory, and the Future of the World. Incredibly timely, a great read. Uh, Dexter, I have to ask you, amid coronavirus and trade war talk, one of the things, and certainly with coronavirus, one of the things that I felt like has fallen away and I feel like is very apropos of your book is the Hong Kong protests mm. um, and sort of what generated that, what was underneath it, the response. What do you make of it? How does it fit into sort of the thesis of your book? Well, um, I, so the, first of all, it hasn't gone away. So in there, there, there was a recent flare up in protests again. And whenever, you know, the world's attention someday, we hope not too long, can pass beyond the coronavirus, we're going to be hearing about the Hong Kong protests a lot more. Really? Because the issues that have, 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 have caused them have not gone away at all. And so um, I would say in Hong Kong, you've got people that basically feel less and less Chinese as uh, the leadership in China has sort of pushed away from this reform model, as I talk about in the book. They feel less and less part of, uh, of the future of China. When mm -hmm. China looked like it was post-World uh, Trade Organization entry looked like it was on this path towards greater liberalization. Right up, right up to the 2008 Olympics, we saw an opening uh, to, uh, in society as well. Uh, they really felt like, yeah, we're, we're, we can be part of China. Young people in Hong Kong today do not feel Chinese. Right. Surveys have shown they identify themselves as Hong Kong. They strongly uh, do not like to be called Chinese. That's so interesting. Um, well, we are, as you well know, Bloomberg Business Week, uh, having uh, worked under our auspices for a long time. Uh, talk about the business side of all this and some of the big companies, because as you say, you get to uh, Beijing in, in the mid 90s and it's a very different economy than it is now. The global supply chain now is so deeply rooted in China, something that we've learned uh, very clearly over the past couple months with the coronavirus. You think about a name like Apple, you think about their relationships there with a Foxconn and others. Help us understand how that came about, where it is and where it goes. Well, I, again, with China's WTO entry um, and the associated policies of market opening that were implemented, it became it became the place to be. And, yeah. and obviously these companies like Apple, they were looking at it as an export platform and they were looking at it, of course, as a market. And uh, and that was the right way to look at it. Uh, and they assumed, like everyone else, that the uh, the opening would continue and that would drive continued growth in the middle class. And the, and they would continue, you know, they would continue to benefit from that. What we've seen in recent years is, uh, as I argue in the book, sort of a stalling of reform and therefore of growth in the middle class. Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of companies like Apple, they, you know, they pretty much saturated the big urban markets. Yeah. And they're not going to, the, the days of fast growth are, are not going to happen. They had assumed it would happen because they had assumed the same thing would happen in the countryside, in the other half of China. And it, it just really isn't. Right. And so ultimately, just to come back to the virus, at least for a minute, uh, how much of a test of this and how is he doing uh, with it is this for President Xi? So... Uh, as, as we all know, the world knows now, initially there was a, a, a real failure in, in that there was a cover-up. Yeah. And uh, during that time, you know, a doctor was punished, obviously, for um, actually talking about this crisis that he recognized. During that time when the cover-up was happening, you know, the disease spread and people, frankly, died and things got worse. Um, now China is looking better. You know, they've, they've used all their draconian uh, powers to with the quarantines, with the lockdowns, uh, with uh, digital uh, monitoring of citizens through their mobile phones, they've been actually really to, able to get a handle on, mm -hmm. on this crisis. And if we believe the figures and roughly, you know, there may be problems there, but I do think what we're seeing is uh, a drop off. Right. And so now they're trumpeting this great victory. That's very good. The argument that, uh, that I would make is that this is really, uh, this is what's happening in the cities. So if you look at the people in the cities and if you talk to them, frankly, a lot of them are probably going to be quite supportive of these increasing authoritarian, authoritarian measures because they'll say, look, the leadership protected us. Right. It worked. This, yeah. And this, yeah, it worked. And this, this is what happened after uh, after SARS in 2003. Yeah. I actually wrote a piece for Business Week, uh, basically arguing that the Communist Party was being uh, strengthened by the by the SARS virus. And I think they were. I think that's going to happen in urban China. But that's not happening right. in the countryside. The right. migrants that are struggling, are, are they're not happy about where this is going. All right. Only about a minute left, unfortunately for me. Uh, biggest surprise putting this book together. You sit down. You have all this knowledge that you're distilling down. What jumped out at you as you were sort of putting it together? Well, I'm not sure uh, when actually in the process this, this jumped out at me. But either during the process or slightly before, this realization that – so this this system in China, which is – buttressed by these policies, the household registration and the land policy, um, it's a huge human rights crisis. I mean, yeah. they're treating half the population like second-class citizens. What I realized in the, in the writing of the book, and I hope it comes through, is that this has actually been integral to the quote-unquote China economic miracle. Yeah. They have, they've, they've used this sort of captive population of low-paid workers in order to do what they've done. Right. Well, it's a terrific book, a provocative new book. Dexter Roberts, he is the Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana, and we proudly say, former Bloomberg Businessweek China Bureau Chief. His book, his first, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and the Future of the World, incredibly timely, uh, really helps you understand the place that China has, how it got there, and maybe more importantly, where it's going from here. And with everything going on in the world related to the virus, the trade war, uh, and as Dexter mentioned, the Hong Kong protests that aren't actually going away just in the background right now. Uh, it's a must read.